You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. Disciple, and how do we be a disciple in this world, in our ordinary jobs, in our ordinary calling, and if God calls you uh, into the Christian ministry as well? Okay, so we're here. Uh, Jesus declares that he's going to the cross. Peter rebukes him. And, he sa- and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So what's God's interest? What's man's interest? Well, how do we set our mind on the things of God? And how do we set our mind on the things of man? So when we're thinking about God's interest, we're thinking about love, truth, and holiness. When we're thinking of man's interest, I'm thinking about my ego and my image and my lusts and what I want. So that's human interest. When I'm thinking of God's interest, I'm thinking about the interests of gospel and salvation. Man's interest, mere worldly pursuits and entertainments. When I'm thinking of God's interest, justice, mercy and kindness. Man's interest, power over others. You know, I want to be the person walking down the hallway with the attorneys in tow, the big boss. You know, that's my ego in control there, right? when we're in God's interest, we give to the poor, but a man with an ego wants to marginalize the poor, wants to have nothing to do with them. God's interest, building up the church. Man's interest, building their own empire. God's interest, having mature believers. Man's interest, having followers and fans who will bow down and say, whoo, 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 you know? Uh, okay. Uh, God's interest, godly families. Man's interest, sensuality and the breakdown of the family. God's interest, prayer and worship. Man's interest, I, interest, idols and witchcraft and ways of getting ahead with spiritual tricks. God's interest, revival and missions. Man's interest, self-glorification. God's interest, upholding the word of God and prophecy. Man's interest, criticizing the Bible so they can wiggle around with their sins. God's interest, the image of God, forming the image of God in us. Man's interest, the image of the beast, the ultimate predator and competitor. God's interest, the new, forming the new heaven and the earth. Man's interest, just dwelling here now being what Revelation calls an earth dweller. And they're the ones that get in all sorts of trouble. So he goes on in Mark 8, 34 and 35, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now this is the disciples' cross. There's Jesus' cross on which he dies, but each of us has a cross on which we die. We take up his cross. Now that cross is not pain, it's not the various things in my body, it's not this finger that doesn't work and aches and hurts, that's not my cross. My cross is the place where my ego dies. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and his gospels will save it. Now, the word life and soul is the same word throughout this passage. It's the Greek word suke from which we get psychology. It's our self, it's our soul. So, In English, it gets translated differently. It gets translated as two words, life and soul. But throughout this passage, it's the only, the one word, suke, and it means the animating life principle, that which is me, that part of me that goes on to eternity, that if you shoot me now, my suke, my soul goes off to God, uh, that is what we, uh, 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 that is my animating life principle. So Christians, have to die to their old identity, to their old suke, their old way of being. Behold, all, uh, we, when we die to that old way of living and we have to put on the new identity, which is Christ. Discipleship is disciplined living 
with the goal of ending up in the image of God because you have followed Christ's commandments which have formed your soul properly. So discipleship, which we'll be talking about uh, throughout this year, it's discipling one-on-one. Being a disciple is disciplined living. You take up your cross, you live a disciplined life, and you want to end up in the image of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, all those good things. And Romans 8.29 tells us that God predestines us, God works in us to make us into the image of God. Uh, and the, uh, 2 Corinthians 3:17 and 18 says, The Holy Spirit comes upon us and gives us liberty, and gradually there's a transforming work of the Holy Spirit to transform us into the image of God. So what is this image of God? It's a very theological term, but it's simply like this. Jesus is the true image of God, and it's things like his love and his healing presence, a joy and faith and holiness and compassion and justice and truth and mercy and patience and friendship and loyalty, and having the energy of the Holy Spirit in you and being creative and abundant. That's the image of God. It's all those things, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, good. It's having that character that Jesus had. When Jesus turned up in the room, he was a healing presence. When you turn up in the room, you should bring that blessing with you when you're fully in the image of God. So uh, it's not running around with a long white beard and throwing lightning bolts. Uh, uh, It's not some physical thing. It's a character thing where you're like Jesus and you're a blessing in your environment, where you're uh, bringing peace and joy and hope and people see you as different, as, as someone separated from this world. Okay, so here's a fundamental thing here. We've got a a chap here who's full of ego and he thinks the sun and the moon and the planets all revolve around him. Uh, Now that is not what we want to be as a Christian. The Christian's walking away from the ego towards the cross of Jesus Christ. So to deny yourself, it says deny yourself, take up your cross. We need to renounce the ridiculous demands of our ego and live under the peaceful, life-giving law that should be life-giving typo there, law of Christ. So if you, our ego, at least my ego, has a lot of ridiculous demands. Right? When I'm being pompous, I think I deserve this and I deserve that and I should be up here, not over there. Right? I want my Mercedes SLK 550 sports car bright red and I want to go down the street looking important. That's the ridiculous demands of my ego, and as a missionary, I think that's out of my reach. So there is a case where my ego wants stuff. It wants status. It wants to be there, and it becomes competitive. It becomes abrasive. It has to win, win, win all the time, and that, those demands are ridiculous and create conflict and stress. Right? So we have to say, no, ego, you have to die. The ego and the spirit are opposites. Now, you you still have to have a healthy sense of who you are, but that competitive ego has to go to the cross. Romans 8, 4 to 6. Let's have a look at that for a second. Romans 8, 4 to 6. There we are. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, 
but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So we want to have our mind on the cross, on the things of the Bible, and not on our own competitive desires. If we have it on our own competitive desires, the result is spiritual death. Okay. It says, For I have no longer I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So with first of our first cross is to be crucified with Christ and to die to mark the ridiculous demands of my puffed up little ego. That's your you die to that part of yourself which is negative, that is whiny, that is self-pitying. Uh, it will missionary work pummels the self-pity out of you. You have to let go of your self-pity. You have to let go of that whiny, negative part of you that wants to take over, wants to grumble, and wants to complain in every restaurant you go to, is always fed up with the traffic, and is basically negative. You have to die to that. And it is no longer that I that lives, but Christ who lives in us with his love, joy, peace, and patience. Well, wait a sec, go back. Now, there's a, a oh. okay. Now, with, now when, when we die, we also die to the world, but I've got to define world here because the Bible use, uses the word world in five different ways, from just meaning uh, the whole created order uh, to society in general, as when uh, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. But there's a sense of the world which means the wicked world, the worldliness world, the world that we see when we turn on the TV at night uh, and behold the political shenanigans and this and this, that, that, that worldliness world. Uh, and so that world, that cosmos, is the demonically energised, all-pervasive social system focused around satisfying the desires of the unregenerate human ego. The person marching through Las Vegas with their bling and their people around them and uh, they're all the whole worldliness kind of thing where it's all just money, sex, power and ego. And that worldliness kind of thing is a complete opposite to the kingdom of God. And we've got to look at some Bible verses here. James 4 verse 4. It's pretty blunt. James is a blunt guy. So after we go to Hebrews, go James 4 and verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So when you get friendly with the world system, you're an enemy of God. Let's see why that's so. We'll go to Ephesians 2, 1 to 4. Go left to fair way. Galatians, Ephesians 2, 1 to 4. And you, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And once you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So this world is run by the prince of the power of the air, what's the devil? The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us dead. It's, it's, uh, uh. So here, the satanic work, the prince of the power of the air, keeps us trapped in our own little self-interest, going around, chasing foolish little things. Uh, and that existence uh, makes us 
children of wrath under God's anger. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. I'm going to a fair way right in your Bible towards the end. The epistle of John 1, John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lusts of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And finally, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Go left, just past Romans 1 Corinthians 2, Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 18. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, and as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So there's this absolute separation between the world and the kingdom. And you really can't have a foot in both and be a successful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ because you're always walking away from your ego and your ego is what is at the center of the world. Okay, in the world and the kingdom, I'm drawing a sharp contrast here. We'll, we'll get around to uh, 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 looking at some of the uh, balance later on. Here in the world, and the world is just a gigantic market. At the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, it talks about the mark of the beast, which is 666. We've all heard about that and various things. Well, what does it enable you to do? It enables you to buy and sell. So what the 666 enables you to do is buy and sell. And the Christians who do not accept the mark of the beast will not be able to buy and sell. So those who have the mark will be in the market. And those who do not have the mark will be out of the market and be unable to buy and sell and rely on God's provision. So the final break is between the world, Babylon, chapter 18, and the saints and the kingdom. And it's an absolute break based around market forces, believe it or not. So in the world, everything has a price. In the kingdom, everything is free. Your salvation is free. You don't have to pay to be saved. In the world, it's all works, effort, and ambition. In the kingdom, it is faith, grace, and rest. In the world, it's buying, selling at 666, uh, even selling the bodies and souls of men and women. But in the kingdom, it's divine provision. In the world, it's all contracts. You sign that contract with your devil. You sell the soul. Uh, in the kingdom, it's covenants and free redemption. In the world, you're a slave of the system. In the kingdom, you're a son of God. In the world, you get your wages, and the wages of sin is death. The kingdom, you will get an inheritance which is eternal life. In the world, you end up in the image of the beast, uh, the complete predator. In the, in the kingdom, you end up in the kingdom of God, in the image of God. Okay. So we end up, this is what Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So here's a little thing. There's a cross in the middle. 
Down the bottom, in small size, we have the world. Money, sex, power, ego, kingdoms and possessions, where we're grabbing for everything and playing the game. But the world is very, very small. It's much smaller than the kingdom. See, when you're in the kingdom, you know things that the world doesn't know. Love, joy, spiritual peace, eternal life, spiritual purpose and meaning. You're in a world of angels. You're a world which goes on for all eternity. You know worship, you know compassion that comes from the spirit. You know fellowship of the saints. You have true friendship, mercy, forgiveness, integrity. And as a person who's been in Christian ministry, I know the joy of leading someone to the Lord and billionaires who are unsaved don't know the joy of leading someone to the Lord. Uh, I know what it's like to see people filled with the Spirit and their lives changed. I know what it's like to see someone freed from a, a besetting sin or an addiction. I know what it is to walk with God and be in adventures with God because the kingdom things are bigger and better. And when I go back around my family in Australia or other people and they're talking about this or that that they've bought, I think it seems like uh, I have been running around on this big football field all my life and there's this little quarter in the middle of the football field where my family lives and its values. They come back, oh, that's very nice. But their world is constricted. It's small. It does not know of eternal life. It does not know of joy. It does not know of the meaning of life. It's all just competitiveness. It's all money, sex, power, ego, kingdom and possessions. Yes, they've got great possessions, but they don't possess the things they nearly really need to possess, which is forgiveness from God and eternal life and, and the things. They don't have all the things of the kingdom. They live in that small world trapped there uh, by uh, their thoughts. Okay, let's clarify something. The world is not the same as having a secular occupation. You can have a worldly church and you can have a godly business. So I'm not saying that you have to give up your job. Right? I'm not saying that. You can, you can go and be a godly nurse or a godly businessman or run a restaurant or do whatever. I'm not saying that you have to go away from that. Uh, the cross is not identical with the church. There are some very bad churches that are very worldly and competitive and egotistical. And there's some very good businesses that form people into discipleship by giving them a good work environment. Okay. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So what is losing your soul? Let's look at 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 and 10, which talks about this at some depth. 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 and 10 but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows so you see these people that chase wealth and lose their soul they become soulless they become dead they become boring they become like Howard Hughes, who became paranoid, even though he was a billionaire. So these people lose their soul because they're chasing the unholy dollar, uh, and they lose that central part of themselves. And losing, Jesus was even tempted by the devil to lose his soul. The devil comes to Jesus and says, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world and all their power, just bow down and worship me. And, basically give his soul to the devil and of course Jesus said no 
It's easy to lose our soul in the materialistic world. And we see that in rock stars and things like that. But on the other hand, we don't have to become a failure. Failure is not from God. God is successful. God is sovereign. God is powerful and God is good. So God doesn't want to turn you into some religious fruitcake that bumbles their way through life and never succeeds at anything. I'm not telling you to do that. Okay, God is successful, victorious and positive. However, not all success is godly success. There is carnal ego-based success. Gambling is not true success. True success is the kind of strenuous victory in life that builds character and leads us towards the image of God. So when you are working in your job and you're showing strength and character and discipline and creativity, when you are doing those things and you succeed by, by living by Christian principles uh, and your job forms you into the image of God, that is true success. Success involves diligently doing the things that God wants you to do in an obedient and godly manner that improves your Christian character. And in most cases, that will lead you up the ladder of success. So you do the things that God wants you to do. God might want you to be a nurse. God might want you to be a school teacher. God might want you to be an engineer. God might want you to be a doctor or an attorney. And God has you there to witness to people that I can't witness to. Because I'm not there in your office. I'm not there in your place. So, and, and if you do this diligently, it will mainly take you up the ladder of life to visible success. So what's the ideal career? We're talking about the cross, and we're seeing this, you might be interpreting, oh, goodness me, if I'm going to do this, I have to be a pastor or a missionary or, or someone like that. I'm not saying that, right? I'm saying you have to be like Jesus, and that's going to require so. So what's an ideal career? Firstly, it has to be in the moral will of God. There's no such thing as a Christian burglar. We've heard of breakthrough ministry, well, you can't have break-in ministry. So you can't be a Christian burglar. Your career has to be in the will of God. Uh, it, has to pro it should provide for your family's need and allow for professional growth because he who does not provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. So uh, that's 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. You should be able to provide for your family. Secondly, it gives you the experiences and discipline that you need to grow in Christ. Your job should challenge you and stress you. At some point in your life, you should have a terrifying boss who bullies you around and makes you into a better person. Right? And hopefully uh, that's when you're young. Okay, you need the experience and it also need a job that keeps your ego humble. My work as a missionary keeps me humble because I am constantly facing challenges. The job is bigger than me. I have to rely on God to get through. So that's the ideal career for you. Okay. Mark 8, 38, it goes on. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this is talking about persecution. The disciples were going out and soon they would be persecuted first by the Jews and then by the Romans. So if persecution comes, we need to be able to deny ourselves and follow Christ. Now, at the moment, we're not being particularly persecuted here in America, but in many places I go, persecution is a reality. The shirts from Indonesia, and, and when I was visiting Indonesia, in some parts, persecution is a reality. We need to hold on to our eternal life rather than our physical life and to our possessions. 
And in Hebrews it says that they lost their possessions for being Christians. We need to be openly Christian and very courageous and have faith in God. If we forsake Christ, grab at this life and walk away from the cross, then we lose our souls. Okay. Daniel's a good example. He was a godly prophet. He was also highly successful. He was favoured of God. And God, in, in Daniel uh, 11 and 12, says he's precious to God. He, God really loved Daniel. And he's one of the few people that are praised by the angels. Uh, Daniel, Daniel's secular job was absolutely awful. He was an administrator in Babylon. This demonic, dark kingdom ruled over by an idolatrous king who asked everyone to bow down to him. In fact, his first job was being in charge of the astrology department. He was in charge of all the magicians. Couldn't think of a worse job than that, could you? Here's this wonderful Jewish boy put in charge of the astrology department, but he showed that God was superior to all the astrology. Uh, and he was promoted up the bureaucracy of Babylon. Now, he went through incredible stress. Just read the book, the first six chapters of, uh, of it. He was thrown into lion's dens. He was persecuted. He had all these satraps and bureaucrats with knives out for him day and night. He, he, and, uh, he, had, he was praying to God three times to, every day through his windows to get thrown in the lion's den and all that. But he, it was his attitude and his deep consecration that allowed him to be a good person in a bad place. And most of you are called to be a good person in a bad place. You're, you're going to go into a firm or a place where it's imperfect. I worked for the, the Queensland government for a few years. I was in charge of a counselling unit. Uh, and uh, the Queensland government was not the most honest place on, in creation. And I had to be a good person in a bad place. Uh, and you may find yourself stuck here and there. Now, there's been times in my life when I've walked away from certain places when they've gone dishonest. I say, the line has been reached here. I can no longer participate in this. I have to head out the door and let God take care of me. So God will tell you where that line is. Daniel managed to be a good person in a bad place through his prayer and his consecration. Okay. And, but Daniel was not afraid or ashamed of God. He stood up for God in Babylon. He was openly worshipping Yahweh. So the worldly person, the worldly Christian, refuses to witness to Christ. But Daniel and the spiritual people are not ashamed of the gospel. The worldly person hides their Bible in their faith. But the spiritual person is openly Christian in every way. The worldly person is scared of being thought of uncool and unacceptable. But the spiritual person is prepared to pay the price of being known as a believer and then he said to them truly I say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power this is where it finishes up what's this mean it refers to the sequence that starts at the transfiguration which is the next few verses after this they go up in the mountain and there's a transfiguration and this starts the kingdom of God coming with power Jesus shines up Ooh, wow we're part of the kingdom and we're seeing Moses and Elijah. And then a sequence starts. Transfiguration leads to cross. The cross leads to the resurrection. The resurrection leads to the ascension. And the ascension leads to the uh, kingdom coming in power at Pentecost and eventually the return of Christ. And all these kingdom activities, when we participate in the kingdom coming in power, when we're filled with the Spirit, 
uh, when we behold God in glory, that transfigures us into the image of God because we dwell in a very sp powerful spiritual universe. It's much bigger than the world. All the kingdoms of this world will eventually become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ. So it's a good idea to be on the right side. Uh, uh, and so we dwell in this very powerful spiritual universe. And Colossians 3, 27 to 29. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is in Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. God wants you mature in Christ. God wants you in the image of God. That's where your life should head. Your life does not need to head to the huge mount, mansion in the hill of Palos Verdes. If you have that, terrific. But that's not the goal of your existence. That's not why Christ saved you. If Christ takes you there, fine. I'm not nothing against that. But that's not your objective. Your objective in life is not to have a better kitchen than your sister-in-law. Uh, that is not, you know, the backsplash has to be better than someone else's. You've got to get past that. The objective of your life is to be mature in Christ. And there's a powerful energy working in you for that. Okay, so five things to do. Now after this, we're going to, I'm going to have some microphones here. I'm going to ask you to ask me questions. Why is that? Because this teaching is so challenging that it sort of fries people's brains. People get confused about the disciples' cross. And you're free to ask questions for a few minutes and then we'll have the, the band come up, uh, the worship team. Five things to do. Firstly, check your ego's ridiculous demands. When your ego is starting to get out of control, say, no, that's not of Jesus. Secondly, rewire your mind to think of God's priorities, not man's priorities. Remember that first slide. Oppose sin, compromise and worldliness. Don't let yourself go down in that path. Stand up for Jesus and serve God with a humble and holy heart, C-R-O-S-S. That's taking up your cross. Okay, so taking up your cross, check your ego's ridiculous demands, rewire your mind to think of God's priorities, oppose sin, compromise and worldliness, stand up for Jesus and serve God with a humble and holy heart. Just can someone with, put a microphone around, if you've got any questions at all, I'll be happy to answer them. I want you to go away clear, with things clear in your head. Anyone got a question of any sort? Be bold, or you can write one down and give it to them if you, uh, if you want to do it that way. All right. Any question anywhere? No? Okay, no one's feeling brave. All right. But there's often questions about our consecration. Feel free to email me, johned at cybermissions.org. Feel free to email me with any questions that come into you after this. Uh, we're now going to have... I have decided to follow Jesus, and as the worship team sings, I have decided to follow Jesus, I want you to think about how you can die to self, how you can follow Jesus, how you can take an extra step towards consecration, how, how, what things do you need to put away, are there some objects in your house you need to get rid of, some things you're doing that are wrong, and let's consecrate ourselves to Jesus. Let me pray as the team comes up. Father in heaven, we have decided to follow you.
We have decided to deny ourselves, to take up the cross, and to follow Jesus. And now, Lord Jesus, I ask that you will impress on our spirit, impress on our heart and our mind the truth of these words. Help us to walk away from the world system towards the God system. Help us to work away, walk away from the world to the kingdom. Help us to sacrifice our ego and pick up the image of God and of Christ. Help us, Lord. Help us to follow you truly. I have decided to follow Jesus. Let us all decide to follow Jesus. No turning back. Lord, speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.